Today we begin a study in the book of Jude. Uh, let me just start off by saying that over the centuries, the book of Jude has gotten really bad press. Uh, as one author put it, perhaps no other book of the New Testament have critics considered of less value today than the epistle of Jude. As to why that is, we will see in a bit. Martin Luther uh, saw it as second-class scripture. I didn't even know there was such a category. Erasmus rejected it outright. Um, one 20th century scholar wrote that it was the least valuable of all New Testament writings. Another said that it has for us little abiding spiritual significance. Why all the bad PR? Why all the bad press? Well, in the past, it was deemed unimportant because it was seen as merely a repetition of what we find in Second Peter. One author has determined that 20, the 25 verses in Jude, 15 of them appear in Second Peter. That, in fact, is not the case. Um, from verses 4 to 18 in Jude, we find material that is very similar to what we read in Second Peter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 3. But they are not duplications. This is not, you know, copy and paste. Um, there are differences. By the way, it is worth noting that one commentator has said that Second Peter and Jude are among the, le- the most neglected books of the New Testament. Well, it's no surprise there if they have much in common, if they have much that is similar, yeah, that they would both be rejected. I would encourage you, if you find the time, to look, read the book of Jude and then Second Peter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 to see the similarities. There are similarities, as I've said, but there are also striking differences. But let, let's, let's deal with this question. What if, in fact, Jude did copy from Peter's second letter? Some would say, well, this is contrary to the biblical doctrine of inspiration, uh, that each writer had to be independent of all other writers. And I don't think that's true. Okay. First of all, it's important that we recognize and affirm that it is scripture that is inspired and not the writer. Okay. Now, we are told regarding scripture, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. By the way, where are those verses found? Second Peter, which people see as, as not valuable, like the book of Jude. It's the writing that's inspired. If you read the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he says, in fact, that many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, and he continues, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So, um, Let's say, for example, did Matthew write before Luke? We don't know, but let's say that he did. Did Luke read Matthew's account? Why not? It's, it's not a problem. I think it's just a, a wrong view of inspiration. Um, Peter also wrote, again in Second Peter, about Paul's writings. He writes in the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters, what Peter's writing about. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. So I think in in 
an incomplete view of inspiration or a wrong view of inspiration, people have really misunderstood the book of Jude. There's also another problem, and that is Jude does something that is considered not kosher, if I may use that word. He quotes, it seems, at least twice from the Apocrypha, which we do not accept as scripture. We will deal with that when we get to those passages. Okay? But we don't live in the past. We live in the modern era. And in the modern era, it is Jude's tone toward false teachers that have really, it's really put people off. Um, they see it as really not being very Christian. How, Jude, how dare Jude say such things in such a harsh tone? This epistle heaps denunciations on those in error, those who pollute the purity of the faith, and insist um, that the, Jude insists that the revelation of God in Jesus Christ cannot be compromised. As again, one writer put it, the severity of the tone of the epistle is without parallel in the New Testament. And so people are like, yeah, that really makes me feel uncomfortable. We will just ignore it and discount it and say that it's not important. Another writer is even harsher. It lashes with a whip of scorpions, the libertines who try to conceal their evil deeds under the cloak of religion. Fierce invectives flash out like lurid flames. Um, you'll see as we go along in the book of Jude. But in our day, in which tolerance is seen as the supreme value, the highest value, um, and truth is believed to be relative, you know, that's your truth, then Jude really seems to have lost its relevance. Yeah, that old guy, yeah, he's just way too angry, uh, very intolerant. We're just going to ignore him. But we will see as we go along, and we need to ask ourselves, does not God's holiness stand in opposition to all sin and all evil? And is there not, in fact, divine judgment? I agree with the author who writes, his whole epistle must have relevance now, unless the nature of divine justice and character of human lasciviousness and kindred evils have changed. As long as men need stern rebukes for their practices, the epistle of Jude will remain relevant. Its neglect reflects more the superficiality of the generation that neglects it than the irrelevance of its burning message. The problem is with us and not with Jude. I believe that the book of Jude is scripture. It is something that is God-breathed. and Therefore, it is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. As we begin our study, there are certain questions we need to answer, but let's read the first three verses and then we will get into these questions. Verse one, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. What is the book of Jude? Well, it is a letter. It is an epistle, okay? And as much of the epistles that we find in the New Testament, it opens the way that ancient letters did with the author, uh, rather than putting at the end as we do in the modern age. You know, we sign our name at the end. The name of the author is put at the beginning. And we will see in verses 3 and 4 the occasion why this letter is written is pointed out. But... It starts out as a letter, and we'll see in verse number three, 
Jude seems to change his mind and change gears, and it becomes a sermon. Um, he is the brother of James, and James's book, I'm convinced, is a sermon. Jude follows that pattern. Starts out as a letter, and then he begins to preach. In verses 5 through 19, he deals with false teachers. In verses 20 to 23 is, is a call to action, and then the last two verses form a doxology. Which is, uh, I think, more appropriate for the end of a sermon than it is for the end of a letter. One could say that this was a sermon which Jude would have delivered in person if he and his readers could have met face to face. But since they can't, he puts a sermon in the form of a letter. So who writes it? It is Jude. That much we know, but Jude, there are at least six people, uh, six men in the New Testament who are known as Jude. Jude is actually a variant of Judas, and we have at least two of the disciples of Jesus, Judas Iscariot, and then Judas, not Iscariot, it's probably Thaddeus, uh, two of the twelve have the same name. Um, there is another Jude or Judas in the New Testament in the Gospels who is the half-brother of Jesus, who is mentioned in Matthew 13 and Mark 6. Um, he doesn't identify himself as such. He identifies himself as the brother of James. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Jude was not an apostle, neither was James. Okay? And Jude doesn't say he's an apostle. Um, some people have asked, why doesn't Jude and James, for that matter, why don't they identify themselves as the brothers of Jesus? I would say that the ascension of Jesus radically altered all of his human relationships. And so his brothers would naturally restrain from saying, oh yeah, I'm, I'm his half-brother, because he has now ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father on high. And one could argue, as I do when we went through James, that to be called a servant of Jesus Christ was a higher calling, if you wish, a higher designation than to be known as his brother. When Jude came to become a Christian, he had to change from knowing Jesus as his brother to acknowledging him as his Lord and Savior. Verse number four, um, he says, Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. What do we know about, know about Jude? Very little, except in fact that he was the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus. Third question, who are those who are being addressed? There's been a lot of speculation which in, in reality doesn't resolve anything. I think it's better for us to see how Jude addresses them. And there are three facts that he says about them. First of all, they are called. That means to say that they are believers, they are Christians, they are called by God. It's important for us as we begin our study to recognize that every Christian has been called by God to be a Christian. It isn't something that someone's like, oh, I think I'll become a Christian. It is something that God initiates. He calls us to be his children. We shouldn't be surprised by this because we find beginning with Abraham that God calls people to be his own. Okay. Secondly, not only are they called, they are loved. The second foundational truth is this, that Christians are not only called by God, but they are loved by God the Father. We see in the Gospel of John 
that it is the love of the Father which caused him to send his Son into the world that we might have eternal life. It is important for us to remember this, that they are loved by God, because when you get done going through the book of Jude, as he castigates and thrashes the false teachers, um, love isn't the first thing that comes to mind. But in fact, in verse number 21, Jude will say, keep yourselves in God's love. Um, If you love someone, it doesn't mean that you are not going to correct them, and perhaps even harshly. The third thing that we see is that they are kept. They are called, they are loved, and they are kept by Jesus Christ. That is to say they are secure, because after they hear what Jude has to say, they might begin to wonder whether or not they are still Christians. And he's like, you are called by God the Father. In fact, you are loved by God the Father, and you are kept by Jesus Christ. To be kept by Jesus Christ doesn't mean wealth or success or an easy road, a hassle-free life, as Francis Schaeffer used to put it. Um, When the church is flooded with false teachings, it is of great comfort to know that we are kept by the Lord Jesus. It's an important aspect of Jude's letter. Four times in this letter, he mentions being kept. Out of 25 verses, four times he mentions this. Because you know, when you have all this false teaching coming in, and now Jude comes in with a whip of scorpions, you might like feel like you're dizzy, you're losing your balance. And he's like, no, you are kept by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important for us to recognize that Jude had great compassion on his readers. He's writing with compassion. He's writing to remind them. He's writing to keep them safe. He continues that before he rips into the false teachers, he prays that they would have in abundance mercy. This is, this really gets important when we get to the end of the book in verses 21, 22, and 23. It is the mercy that God will show us on the day of judgment. This is important to Jude. But he's also praying that God would show them mercy now, not simply in the future, but now. And that God would also give them peace. And it's not merely peace of mind, there is that, but rather peace is shalom, the way things ought to be. And in the midst of the chaos, Jude prays that God would give them peace, that things would settle, that they would see things as they truly are. He addresses them as dear friends. Um, But we'll get to that in a minute. What is Jude's purpose in writing this letter? Why does he write this, in modern terms, horrible letter, where he's so hard on people? We'll look at verse number three, which we read earlier. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. He addresses them as dear friends. The King James has beloved, which I think I prefer because one could argue that friends or even dear friends has lost a lot of meaning in our society today. Jude wants his readers to know at the outset that... uh, The fact that he's going to say some hard things does not, in fact, mean that he doesn't care for them deeply. In fact, it is because he loves them that he's writing the things that he does. Uh, 
It is because of his love that he does what he is doing. It is love that is the true bond of Christian fellowship. Now, if you look at verse number three, you should see that something happens here. He has an original purpose, okay? He intended to write to them on a theological subject. I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. Okay? That's what he wants to do, the salvation we share, that which we have in common. The salvation we have in the past has delivered us from our sins, the guilt of it, in the present from the power of sin, and in the future from the presence of sin. That would have been a great letter. It would have been a great letter for, for Jude to write and tell us of these things. But that's not what he ends up writing about. In the second half of the verse, he says, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. It's like, yeah, I was going to write about this, but I just came to the conclusion that I needed to write about something else. Again, it's, it's because of when we live. You know, when he says, I felt I had to, I don't find that helpful because we live in a time of felt needs. You know, how do you feel about things? Jude tells his readers he's compelled to write to them. And it's, what ends up is a very different letter than what he had originally intended. And this, this is not done lightly. It's not just sort of a whim. Yeah, yeah I think I'm going to write about something else. He is compelled because of his love for them to write to them, to urge them to contend for the faith. The King James has earnestly contend, while the NIV merely has contend. Um, the word that Jude uses is only found here in the New Testament. And the root of this compound word is the basis for our English agonize. Uh, it was used of athletic contests, you know, the struggle that is involved in wrestling, for example. It also came to be used of debate or lawsuits in which there's this interaction. The primary thrust is to use all your energy, to use all your energy that you might prevail. Um, some people would use the word win, but uh, Jude doesn't want them to contend for the faith so that they could win, but so that they would prevail, that the truth would stand. And what is it that they're going to contend for? The faith that was once for all entrusted or delivered to the saints. Um, what Jude has in mind here is an objective body of Christian truth, the truths that we hold to be, in fact, true, not simply how you feel about things, your subjective experience of conversion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in the 20th century, and now I would agree in the 21st century, for most people, means only the acceptance. Yeah, I believe, I, I have faith that that is true. So when you see or, or you hear people say, I believe, oftentimes what they believe is, is secondary. Um, it's like the word freedom, you know, that what you're free to, the, the two is, that's secondary. You have to be free. In the same way, belief is seen as the all-important thing. And, and what you believe, well, that's, that's up to every individual. That's not what Jude has in mind. He is speaking of the gospel 
the objective truth which God has entrusted to his people. Because otherwise it's just a series of experiences. And then from generation to generation, we, we hope that the next generation will have an experience like ours, similar to ours. No, no, it is a body of truth that has been entrusted to us as God's people that we are then to communicate to others and to the generations that come after us. Such people are called by Jude saints. That is, they are holy ones, those whom God has called to be his people. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean that they're without sin. It points, I would say, more to their duty than to their qualifications. They have a duty to be God's people. They are kept by the Lord Jesus. Yes, but they are to contend for the faith. Before we move on to the reason for Jude's change, I think we have to acknowledge publicly that historically many who have called themselves Christians have resorted to many means to contend for the faith, including violence, persecution, denunciation, ostracizing, none of which seem to be motivated by love. We think of the Inquisition, part of the Catholics, but Protestants have been guilty as well of killing people because they didn't believe like they did. We are to be motivated by love. And I think we need to recognize that it is easier to contend for the faith than it is to live the faith. That oftentimes those who fight for the faith, yeah, they're just not very nice people. They don't have, it's seemingly the love of God as they contend for the faith. I think that when Jude uses the word saints, he's doing so very deliberately. He wants to make a distinction between those who are the people of God and those who are false teachers. Those who have been given a commission by God to contend for the truth and those who are trying to destroy the truth of God's gospel. And Jude wants them to know you have a responsibility. You have a a duty to live out the truth of the gospel. And when you contend for the faith, it does not weaken that duty. So why did he change? Verse number four. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. Jude follows a pattern you find throughout this epistle of writing in terms of threes. So they are called, they are loved, they are kept. Here he tells his readers of the intrusion of these men, the prophetic announcement made about them, and their basic characteristics. The word that Jude uses to describe this infiltration is only used here in the New Testament. And it indicates a subtle and secret insinuation of something evil into a society. Someone sneaks in to a a group of people and somehow gets them to go in the wrong direction. Then he speaks of their condemnation was written about long ago. And what Jude means by this, he'll explain by giving us three illustrations. And then their characteristics, they are godless men. They have no reverence for God. They devoid of all reverence for God. 
And this is illustrated by the fact that they have turned the freedom that we have into Christ into a license to do whatever they want to live immoral lives. They took the gift of God in which God has promised forgiveness of sins and they said, oh, that means I can do whatever I want because God will forgive me. That's his job, isn't it? God forgives. And so they have used this as a license, as an excuse to do whatever they want. Such men are not ashamed of their sins because they said, I'm I'm forgiven. They also deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. I don't think that, unlike what we find in other epistles, I don't think that this is necessarily a verbal, I deny that Jesus is Lord. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think, in fact, they deny him by their actions. Paul wrote to Titus, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. The false teachers deny the reality of who Jesus is by the way they live. I think we can deny God by our actions in at least two ways. To live a wicked life, that is to say that God does not exist, there will be no future judgment, or to say, I'm a child of God, and then to live a wicked life. Both are pretty bad. So in verses 5, 6, and 7, Jude, using threes, gives us three examples of God's judgment. And the certainty of what's going to happen to these false teachers that are creating chaos in the church. Look, if you would, at verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, those he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In these verses, Jude cites three examples of corporate, not just individuals, but a group of people who depart from God's will. The Israelites in the wilderness, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. I would have you notice that Jude says to his, his readers, um, you already know this. Okay, so he's simply reminding them of things that they already know. He wants to remind them. Okay, we do need to be reminded, don't we? He wants to remind them of the things that they already know. And his intentions are clear. Um, no matter who may be the sinners who sin against God, no matter the circumstances or the types of sin they commit, Divine judgment is a sure thing. So three examples. The first example are the redeemed ones. This, I think, is perhaps most disturbing of the three. God had delivered Israel out of Egypt after four centuries of slavery. God had miraculously delivered them. The ten plagues, they go through the Red Sea, there's manna, all these things. God gives the law uh, on Mount Sinai. They are redeemed. He saved them. But God, who is the deliverer, can also be the destroyer. And with two exceptions, Caleb and Joshua, none of that generation entered into the promised land. God punished them. Why would God do this? What was it that they had done? It is their unbelief. They did not believe what God had promised them. 
So the redeemed ones were judged. Lesson number one. The second group are the fallen angels. And these we would call the highest ones. They're not actually of this planet. They are the high ones. They are those who were in the presence of God. Of the three examples, this is the one that we know the least about. Apparently, Jews' readers knew about it. Um, What exactly they did and when they did this, we are not told. We're simply told that they left their domain, and Jude uses a play on words. They did not keep their positions of authority. God has now kept them in chains, in darkness, for the day of judgment. And here the argument is from the greater to the lesser. If this is what happened to angels who had authority, who were in the presence of God, when they did not keep their place and God judged them, he's keeping them for judgment in the final day, what do you think is going to happen to false teachers? The third example, Sodom and Gomorrah. These we would call the privileged ones. We have the redeemed ones. We have those who are the highest ones. And now we have the privileged ones. Um, Because if you think about it, we're told about Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Abraham and Lot uh, had a lot of sheep. They had a lot of cattle. And the land could not sustain them. Plus, their workers started fighting each other. So Abraham said to Lot, listen, you choose. You go one place. I'll go to the other. And Lot looks down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And he saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the Garden of Eden. I'm sorry, the Garden of the Lord, but it is the Garden of Eden. What a comparison. Sodom and Gomorrah, the land that surrounded it was like the Garden of Eden. And so Lot's like, yeah, I think I'll take that. So many problems with that, not the least of which is his uncle should have chosen first because he's the older, but Lot went down there. They had a privileged situation, and yet we know what happened to them. We read in Ezekiel 16, the sin of Sodom is seen as being arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. Some, by the way, have argued that that the issue then with Sodom and Gomorrah is not homosexuality, perversion of any kind. Uh, It is, in fact, that they were not hospitable, which, in fact, that's part of it. But if you keep reading in Ezekiel 16, they were haughty and did detestable things before me. And if you read the epistle of Jude, it becomes clear that the cities of the plain were guilty of perversion. Again, this is another reason for people to reject Jude as being intolerant and old-fashioned. But why does Jude mention this? Why bring this up at all? Um, Is is homosexuality the worst sin possible? I, I don't think Jude is arguing for that at all. But it is, in fact, after the examples of unbelief and of pride, what the bottom line is, there will be judgment. Whether you are redeemed, like the children of Israel, if you are in the highest position like the angels, if you are privileged by God, blessed by God, if in fact you do that which is wrong, there will be judgment. And Jude will continue to look at this, and we will in the weeks to come. Okay, here at the beginning of our study of Jude, we have to ask ourselves, why was it written? From what we saw in verse number three, Jude started down one path and then made an abrupt turn and said, 
you know, I wanted to write to you about the faith, but now there's something else, and it is the problem of the false teachers. Um, he's deeply concerned about the spiritual welfare of the churches, and he wants to stop, to blunt, to impede in any way the effect that these false teachers might have. One could say that Jude had both a positive and a negative purpose in view. Positively, he wants to encourage the believers. He reminds them that they are called by God, they are loved by God, they are kept by the Lord Jesus, that they are his dear friends, they are beloved, that in fact they are saints. His harshness in this letter does not mean that he is angry at them, that he's turning against them, but he wants to protect them. I think for us to understand, or to be ready to understand what Jude writes, we need to put ourselves in his frame of mind. Consider how you would respond if someone attacked someone who was very dear to you. Perhaps a spouse. And some would say, well, Damon, that's, that's too extreme an example. Um, but what if someone began to flirt or began to do things that were inappropriate towards someone who was dear to you? perhaps even a spouse. And we might say, well, the, our friend, the dear one, our spouse, they have hopefully the wherewithal, they know what's going on and they will reject it. Okay? Okay, so let's, let's try another example. What if someone sought seduce, to seduce your child or any child? And I'm not simply speaking here sexually, Okay. But the attempts to influence children who are still, they're not yet capable of making informed choices. They're still children. They're still growing up. And someone comes along and seeks to take them down the wrong path. I would suggest that there are a few things that could make us more angry. That we would do whatever was necessary to protect the child. to protect a child for someone, from someone who has no scruples, who has no conscience. Someone who would in fact rob the child of his or her innocence and ultimately childhood. We can feel real anger at such a person. Several decades ago, not that far from here, just down Melrose, about half a dozen blocks, um, I used to be involved with Neighborhood Watch, that's how I found out about this. Uh, someone observed a man had taken a seven-year-old girl into the back of a car, in a carport, and began to molest her. And uh, the men in the area were notified, and they were told, and they went in, they let the air out of the tires of the car, they told the men, let the child out, and they got the child out, and then they beat this man almost to death with baseball bats. And as far as I know, that girl was not related to any of these men out of anger for what this man was doing, they responded in that way. And you might say, yeah, Damon, that's a very emotional, that's a very visceral reaction. Um, yeah, but there are also moral and intellectual aspects as well. That's not something that should be done. What you are doing is wrong. Jude's reaction in this letter is theological. We'll get plenty of theology here. He, he's already told us about uh, the judgment that has happened to other people. It's also intellectual, but 
it surprises many, it is very emotional. And I think that's what some people object to. They would rather that it's, because they see theology as dry and boring, that he just give us a theological treatise about false teachers. And that's not what Job's, or Jude is going to do. He is going to just blast with both barrels because he is angry because of these false teachers. Over the years, as we've studied scripture together, we've come across difficult passages. And, and not, they're not difficult primarily because they're hard to understand. That happens sometimes. And in fact, that would be a relief. Rather, it is the passages are difficult because it is hard to accept what God does how he acts in certain situations or when he calls on his people to act in certain ways. Uh, Dave has spoken to us about Uzziah when he touched the ark and God struck him dead. They're like, what's up with that? I mean, come on. He made a mistake. You're going to kill him? And how about when God told his people to go out and wipe out cities? They are difficult indeed to understand. I would say I don't have all the answers. And when there is a problem, I would say that the problem is mine and not scripture. There is a tendency today for people to see the Bible or the people of the Bible as primitive. They lived back in different times. Some would even say in the Bronze Age, you know, making them seem somewhat primitive. And it isn't a big step from there to see their vision of God as primitive. Yeah, you know, Jude lived in the first century, and um, yeah, people back then, they just, they didn't think as clearly as we do. They didn't know the things that we know. That Job, uh, that I keep saying Job, Jude, if he were alive today, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be like this. He would be more tolerant. The next step is, you know, they are primitive, their view of God is primitive. God is primitive. Why would God judge? Why would God condemn people for the things that they have done? We need to read the scriptures with humility to hear what is being said. And to remember that our minds are not always our friends. Our minds, in fact, may tell us the opposite of what God says to be so and the opposite of what we read here in the book of Jude. We will in the weeks to come, the Lord willing, hear harsh things from Jude in his sermon. And we may wonder, dude, where's your tolerance? Why are you so intolerant? Because he contends for the faith. The Lord willing, next Sunday, hell. What C.S. Lewis called that crude monosyllable, even as he defended the biblical doctrine of hell. Sounds primitive, but it is truth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we find ourselves in this present age really wondering what we should say or even think about those who say things that aren't true, those who seek to seduce people with lies, those who seek to draw away your children from the truth. 
And sometimes we cover our inaction by saying it's because of love. We want to be tolerant. We don't want to be harsh. May we learn from Jude how it is that we are to contend for the faith and how it is we are to stand against false teachers and their teachings. We should not think of ourselves as more civilized, not primitive like Jude and those who came before him, but as your children, the true God who speaks only truth, that we would contend for the truth. We live in a time in which speaking the truth might even be seen as hate speech, to speak of divine judgment, to speak of the sinfulness of sin. But as your people, those who are called by you, loved by you, and kept by the Lord Jesus, we would stand with you by your grace. It may be, some are saying, that the next few years will be difficult for the church as we seek to contend for what is right. Give us the grace and the strength to remember who we are and to be reminded and to remember what is true, the truth of the gospel. The good news is that we were born into this world as sinners and we can be redeemed by the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would guide us as we go through the book of Jude and give us wisdom and understanding and above all grace. I thank you that on this first day of a new week, you've called us to worship you. May your spirit and your grace be with us as we walk through the world in the coming days. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.